Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to engage and empower your students by going gradeless. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is sixth grade English and social studies teacher, Caitlin Giordano of Illinois. Welcome to season three of Lesson Impossible. I imagine that your summer has been much like mine, trying to enjoy the sunshine while simultaneously worrying about what going back to school will look like for districts still struggling with the global pandemic. While I can't offer much insight on what the future holds, I can provide interviews with inspiring educators who discuss their successes and struggles. In the first two seasons, I stuck to a strict 30-minute length for regular episodes, which meant some great stuff got left on the proverbial cutting room floor. This season, I'm trying out a more flexible episode length while being mindful of my listeners' busy lives, and I'm really excited to air some amazing conversations about trauma-informed education, gamification, preventing teacher attrition, rural education, and so much more. The basic premise, special agents who are making the impossible possible will be the same, which brings me to this episode's guest, Caitlin Giordano. If you had asked me at the beginning of my teaching career if I thought I could provide a good education to students while not providing numerical grades, I would have said it was truly impossible. Yet, more and more educators, including myself, are seeing that not only is it possible, it's better for students, teachers, and parents. Caitlin generously took some time out of her packing for a move to a new district and spoke to me in June over Zencaster. So the reason that I initially got in touch with you is that we were both replying to a tweet and you had mentioned your gradeless philosophy, which really intrigued me. And I was hoping that I could talk to you about that and maybe inspire some other people who are also intrigued when they hear this gradelessness. Do you mind outlining what your philosophy is exactly? Absolutely. So um, the way that I view grading has kind of evolved over the short six years that I've been in education. I started off very, uh, very subscribed to the notion that percentages, points, letter grades were the only thing that we could do that would really motivate our students to do work, to learn, to participate in our classes. And I really, really believed in that traditional grading system. Um, And then I took a class in my grad school work that was focused solely on assessment. And my professor was phenomenal and questioned every single aspect of that philosophy that I held. And what really did it for me was I started really getting into grading research because of a paper that I had to write for his class. And because he had challenged so many of my beliefs, I really wanted to know what the history of grading was and where it comes from and why we did it the way we did. And I found all of this information, all of this research, all of these case studies that have been done on how grading is actually detrimental to real learning. 
because what it ends up doing is it almost uh, it makes school into a transactional environment. You are doing something to get points. You are doing something to to earn a letter grade. But why are like why are you really doing it? Are you actually learning anything and engaging in this process, or is it simply to get the points? And when the points are there. It's to get the points. I think we've all been in a class before where we calculated exactly what kind of grade we needed to get on a final exam or a final paper to get the grade we wanted in the class. And in reality, we weren't actually engaging with the learning material. We weren't actually engaging with what that class was supposed to be teaching us. Instead, we were just figuring out what it was that we needed to do to get an A. And so my philosophy has very much become Let's just take that out of the equation. And so I have a philosophy now where I use uh, I use a reporting system that is based on proficiency, which is flawed in and of itself. I'm the first person to say that, but it still allows me to communicate with students and with families how my kids are doing on individual skills. And so my grade book looks like a mess to a lot of people, but a lot of the feedback that I have gotten from families is that it's very specific because I will have like a whole skill in there. So like using text evidence to support a claim will be what's in my grade book. So, and then parents can go in and see, and students can go in and see where they are in that particular skill, how they're doing there. The difference is that it won't calculate an overall grade. Uh, I just report where they're at with the skill and that's it. Um, and because I do have to report a grade at the end, I do that a little bit differently. And when you're talking about reporting where they're at on a skill, is this a multi-year kind of scale, like where they could be anywhere from kindergarten to university level? Or have you targeted kind of a scale within the sixth grade expectations? It's very, it's built within the sixth grade expectation. So Meeting the goal is the highest you can get, and it is literally, I've pulled it directly from our learning standards that we have, the learning targets that my district put together for each of the skills that we teach in sixth grade English. Meeting that goal would be the highest level that they could hit, and then it was like kind of factored below that, like, okay, if you're not quite there yet, you're just missing some of those pieces, then you're here. If you still need some support, you're not quite getting it then you might be here. Um, If you're still beginning in your understanding, you're here. But the beauty of it is that they know where they are in a specific skill. They're not just seeing that they're getting a 68% in English and thinking to themselves like, wow, I really suck at English. They're seeing where they are on a given skill or concept and can and then know from there, like, hey, I just need to do a little bit more work to get to that level of understanding. It's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, and presumably they can then look at the the language of the skill and be like, okay, well, if I'm only giving, you know, supporting quotes for half the suppositions and meeting means I'm doing that for all, it's a very clear target for a way that they can improve. Absolutely. And it's made my uh, ability to give feedback a lot clearer as well. Uh, Because what I'll do is like on any given task or on an assessment, I'll have the skill at the very top of the page. And then what I'm able to do is say like, you're not quite meeting the skill yet. Here's what you need to do. 
And that's the feedback that I write directly on their work. So it's not even just having them trying to interpret what the skill says either. It's also the feedback that I give. The ability that kids then have to articulate their learning and their understanding it becomes so sophisticated over time because they get used to this and they they get familiar with it. So I would have a student come up to me and be like, all right, it says that I'm supposed to use implicit and explicit text evidence for this, but I can't find any explicit evidence that really is supporting what I think. So do I need to change my claim or should I just find a source that does explicitly support it? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, like, all right, you get it. Like, and you're getting to that point, like you get to that point where they can articulate that to you because they've gotten comfortable with the structure, with talking about their learning, with talking about where they are, and they can start to calibrate where they think they, they need to be based on that. And the conversations you can have are amazing. So I was working in kind of a, a similar aspect with my my junior grades when I was in the classroom, and I approached some, I don't want to call them problems, but there was definitely some issues that I was working through, and I'd love to talk to you about how you approach those, if that's okay with you. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So my first was that even though I wasn't giving grades until, like you said, until the very end, and even then I was in conversation with my admin about the possibility of just saying like meeting or not yet meeting or whatever it was instead of a letter grade, students still, because they were in other classes that were using a traditional grading system, in their mind, they would just look at meeting and say, oh, well, I'm at an A. Like they still would assign that objectivity of the number or the grade because that's how they learn to give themselves esteem from their work. How do you try and shift that mindset? Yeah, so it's it's hard. And that is probably the biggest challenge that you face with this. And a lot of it, I will say, has to do with the open-mindedness of the families and of the students that you're working with, because I, I there's only so much that we can do in our classrooms to really help shift that thinking. Um, and so what I do a lot of the time is talk to my students about how it's really what we're here to do. What is our goal? Is our goal in, in, in sixth grade to just do what we have to do to get by? Or do we want to learn something? Do we want to challenge ourselves? Do we want to push ourselves? And in that same vein, do you want to do it in an environment where you're able to continue learning and continue growing and continue making progress? Or do you just want to do it in an environment where you have one and done, I'm going to count it no matter what you do, and every little mistake you make matters? And usually when I start kind of putting it forth in that way and talking about what learning means and what I'm trying to communicate to them through these uh, these pieces of feedback that I give and things like that, you can see them kind of start understanding like, okay, I'm here to learn. I'm here to understand this. Um, and then another piece of it too, I will say like a lot of, a lot of people that do this model, myself included, still have to give a letter grade and a percentage at the end. So I had to get creative with the workaround to make that happen in 
still honor the student voice that I wanted to honor in my class and the student learning and the input that I wanted to honor. So the way that I worked around with that was that I would send an insert with the kind of my comments about they, where they were at, where it didn't mention the letter grade or the percentage, and then a student reflection on the skills, though I'm fairly certain that some parents just tossed that in the trash and just looked at the letter grade. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do you work with that? So I started doing what I call um, grading conferences. And it's, a, it's something I picked up from some great mentors of mine who really started my thinking on this grade list path in the first place. But uh, essentially what it is, is I spend one week at the end of a quarter, the whole week leading up to that last day of our grading reporting period. Uh, it's called grading week. And my kids have that whole week to prepare a portfolio that showcases their understanding of the skills that we have covered during that reporting period. And I provide like a lot of scaffolding because my kids are in sixth grade, so it, it can be challenging and a lot to take on for them. But I provide them with a lot of scaffolding and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, resources, we should say, to create the portfolio. And so they go through the work that they've completed, the assessments they've done, the feedback they've received. They take time to reassess, meet with me to do some like relearning, some reteaching. Uh, and then they ultimately put together a portfolio of their growth from the beginning of that reporting period until the end. And then I sit down with every single kid individually. They talk me through their portfolio. They showcase all of the growth that they've made. And then at the end, I uh, have a little scale that I created. And it. I ask them, what grade do you think you should get in my class based on what you just showed me? And then they have to make the case for whether, like, what grade they think they deserve, what grade they think they've earned, and then why. And it ends up being this really great conversation where they truly reflect about what they've done and what they think that means. So instead of really like taking out that letter grade, which I want to do eventually, but I don't know that we're there yet. It's a way to incorporate this focus on learning and on growth and on progress while still using that system that they're familiar with. That's really awesome and really empowering, especially to have those conversations at the sixth grade level. I think sometimes we underestimate the metacognitive abilities of our students or their ability to kind of see behind the curtain of what teaching is, but they've been in the system long enough to really figure out what it is and their relationship to it. That must be so empowering for your students. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that I do with all of my units and all of the things in my classroom is anonymous Google form feedback, where I, I ask my kids like how they feel about certain things. And I did one the first time I ran grading conferences, which was first quarter of this year. And I think the most powerful comment from a kid was, I really feel like I get to have a part in my grade now. Like I have a say in it. Oh, that's so sad because it's all based on their work to begin with. Oh, wow. Right. And so it was really enlightening for me to see that and be like, 
even telling them like, hey, you earn your grade, you earn these points, you do this work, even that isn't really driving it home for them. But giving them that time to sit down and tell me like, hey, I think I deserve this and here's why. Really giving them that space and that that ability to speak to their strengths, that's what did it for them. And I will tell you, some of my kids that are not the traditional student that that don't really like thrive in the environment of, of points and tests and assessments totally rocked this, this structure because they felt like it was theirs. That transfer of ownership was authentic and true and real and they felt it. And I think that was the biggest piece for me was really seeing them like take that on and own their learning. So this was another kind of bump. So for me, I found it really easy to say to the kids, okay, if you're starting off the year and you're not yet meeting expectations, but by the end of the year, you have met expectations. Like that's perfect. That's the growth we want to see. If you start off and in the first quarter, you're getting a C minus, but by the end, you're getting an A, you know, I have no problem not just making it an average, but just saying, okay, that was overall an A because you have shown me that you can do A work and you've met that criteria. What I always struggled a little bit more, which is what happens if in the first quarter they're meeting those expectations, but then you see a decline. And I realized that uh, if that is true, the decline is most likely attributed to outside factors like their own emotional or physical health or what's going on at home or those kinds of things. But how do you work with when you have inconsistent work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the beauty of, uh, of the ability to have those conversations through a conference is really helpful. And that is one of the, the big benefits that I saw in having these, these conferences in this week actually set aside for kids to reflect and to go back and reassess and to get that meeting that they needed, that reteaching that they needed, even just to kind of get themselves back on track sometimes. Uh, Because in those conferences, if you're seeing that decline, if you're seeing a student who was previously meeting a goal and isn't now, one, is it a different goal? Are we working on new skills that are more challenging? Because that could be it. And we could talk through what it is that they need from me to help them meet that goal. If it's the same skill and we're, we're just not understanding it now, why? And I can ask that question. So I found that one of the big strengths in having these conversations with kids is the ability to just ask them because they are their people. And sometimes they just need to feel like we're listening and valuing what they have to say. And so uh, when I did have a student who on the very same skill, it was a writing skill, uh, first quarter met the goal, second quarter didn't, I asked, I was like, so can you tell me what was different about this quarter versus last quarter? Can you tell me what happened here? Because you met the goal last quarter, but you didn't this time. And student just looked at me and said, yeah, it just got harder. And I didn't really know what to do this time. And instead of asking, like I did last time, I just didn't. 
And we were able to kind of talk through like, okay, well, why not? Why didn't you ask? What happened that that caused this breakdown in communication? And we were able to get to that root of the problem. The student was able to use the rest of the time that week to reassess on that skill and meet the goal. So we were able to kind of take that that focus away from how many points do I need to get on this exam to, well, here's what I can do to support you in learning how to do this. I can hear the the voice of some of the more traditional teachers in my mind saying, you wasted a week on that when you could have been teaching. And I'm already like pushing that voice back and being like, no, there was more learning happening in that 15 minute conference than there ever would have been in a week of teaching if that student still felt disempowered in their ability to ask questions and reach their goals. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things. I I usually come back with, well, what do you prioritize in your classroom? And asking that question typically causes people to, to take a moment and take stock. Because in my classroom, I prioritize my student learning, all of my students learning, every single one of them. And giving them that week allows them all the time, the grace, the reassessment, the questions, it allows all of that to happen. And the value that I found during that time is so immensely important. So I was able to pull from other units that frankly really didn't need to be taught. I love that. There, in many ways, our units are sometimes our babies. And like you said, that shouldn't be the priority. The priority wasn't that unit we spent so much time on. The priority is what are, what are our students getting out of that unit? And... Another thing that I struggled with and had lots of conversations with my colleagues with was that idea of exceeding expectations, because there are students that are going to not only meet the expectations that we put forth, but just blast right past them. And is it inspiring and affirming to have an exceeding expectations, not necessarily on the rubric, but something that we can tell them? Or are we just, again, making this into a gold star learning transaction? So it's a fantastic question and one that I see at both sides of the debate. I have taught gifted students, so I completely understand why that exceeding expectations is such an attractive thing to to have, especially for those students that do go above and beyond and do have a higher level of understanding. And so uh, what I started doing was uh, I actually started pulling the next grade level up and I used the higher grade level standard. So if I have a student that is consistently meeting sixth grade standards, I have a conversation with their family. I have a conversation with that student. And I say, so how would you feel if I started looking at the seventh grade standards when I'm assessing you? And more often than not, the parents are like, okay, is this going to hurt their grade? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. If they don't meet the seventh grade standards, it's clear that they've met the sixth grade one. This is just a way for them to continue to deepening their understanding and allowing me to give them that that more specific feedback that goes to that higher level. And so it was always a fabulous way to to inspire them to continue trying and really want to keep working at it because the benefit of having 
the standards that we have, at least where I am in Illinois, is that they really build on one another. So the writing standards, so writing narrative for sixth grade, the seventh grade narrative standards are very similar. They just go a little bit deeper into that context. And so by taking and including that rubric for these students that are consistently going beyond, you're still able to assess them, give them feedback while pushing and challenging them. And then the last thing that I struggled with, and next time I'll ask you what you struggle with, but <laughs> as well, was in conversation with my larger department or larger departments in general, there was this idea from perhaps other teachers that didn't share my philosophy or my a colleague's philosophy that you're just going to confuse the student, that if you're doing this with them in sixth grade and then they go into a, a seventh grade model where it's just collecting points into a bucket, that this is going to really confuse them or make them critical or, of course, it's not critical of their learning, it's critical of their teacher or all that kind of stuff. So how do you integrate this into a larger department? So I would say that uh, this is my biggest struggle. Um, and it is probably the, the hardest part of this because if you do go down this path and you're going down it as a small team or even as an individual, that is such a challenge. And so the only thing that I found to really work towards this greater understanding is to share the results of how it looks in my classroom, to invite people in to see it in action, sharing the results of the surveys that I've taken from my students so that people can see not just my perspective, but also the perspective of my learners, and sharing research, truly, because I, like I said before, I was the poster child for belief in traditional grading systems. I did not think there was anything better. I did not think that there was anything that was clearer or more objective until I saw the research. And so at this point, what, what I do is I ask people questions. I share my experience. I share the research that I've found, that I've continued to find, and hope that I can get more people on board. I think we've outlined, you know, some perspective issues that can crop up. Are there others that you struggled with that you think that teachers who want to go down this road should be aware of? Um, I, I, yes. The only other one that comes to mind is it is a lot of work. Uh, the first time you do this, it will not go as smoothly as you'd want it to go because you've never done it and neither have your students. Uh, you are asking them and their families to completely rethink the way that they're looking at reporting and grading and school. And you have to be open to the questions and ready to take on the work that you're going to have to do. Because especially with, with my sixth graders, they are 11 and 12 years old. So there's a lot of work that I had to do on the front end to make sure that they were ready for something like this and to make sure that I had the, the support and the scaffolding in place for them to be successful at it. And I also had to be completely ready and willing to make changes based on what happened the first time around. And believe me, I did, because the first time I was like, all right, this was good, 
but we had some uh, we had some struggles. There were some people that finished their week of their grading week in one day. We got to figure out what to do with that. And so it was like it was definitely some re- readjusting and some recalibrating after that first round. So I would say that it, it is a lot of work. It is something that if you do want to do it, make sure that you do it intentionally and thoughtfully and take the time to, to do the work and make sure you do it right. And what do you do with those learners? My colleague who I love, it, she had this amazing idea to come up with a menu. And it was cute because she actually made it look like a menu. And we created this menu of options for our learners who were finished and who felt that they really didn't have any other reassessment to do. They really didn't have any reteaching that they needed. Their portfolio was done. They were good to go. So we created a menu of basically enrichment opportunities based on the unit that we had finished, or if we were in the middle of a unit when this week came around, we would have them continue working on some of that stuff. But it was just a menu of items for them to do and to work through that were really focused on engaging their thoughtfulness and getting them to engage further with the learning in our classes, but in an even more low stakes kind of way. My favorite thing was I would have a sign up on my whiteboard called student experts and I would filter it by, uh, by skill. So I would write each of the skills that we had covered that quarter on the board. And if a student was done and they had met the goal, they could sign up to be an expert. And so if I was in a conference and talking with a student and someone else needed help, instead of coming to me, they could go up to the board and be like, oh, okay, I need help with this. Well, Bobby's an expert on that. I'm going to go talk to him. And it was cool because we we had this in my class and my kids really did rely on one another to make that happen. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. And my other thought too is, you know, you're talking about that kind of learning stage of implementation, but I think as more teachers become inspired by this model and it gets implemented earlier and earlier in students' educational journeys. Students are going to be so used to this model that if the teacher's kind of late to the game, that's not going to make too much of a difference after a time because the kids are going to be like, oh, well, we've done this in English and math and science. Like, don't worry, we got this. (laughs) Absolutely. And they really do get good at it, as weird as that sounds. But it's it's cool to see them like, okay, I'm going to put together a portfolio of my learning. Let's do this. And they run with it. And they're, they get very, very skilled at being able to put this together and then talk about it. Well, I can't say enough how inspiring and informative this interview is. And I know that you're still as far ahead as you are, uh, still on the learning journey yourself. Are there any people that you look to on social media or books or resources that you would recommend that other people tune into as well? 
Absolutely. So um, the people that really got me started on this gradeless journey were Jeff Frieden, who is on Twitter, and Aaron Blackwelder. They both use this model in high school. Jeffrey specifically really helped me kind of adjust what I needed to adjust uh, for middle schoolers. And I had some conversations with him about it. And then as far as what to read, there are so many good books about grading and assessment out there. I honestly... If you read any of them, you're going to learn something from it. So I I caution myself in recommending too many books because there's just so many. (laughs) Truly, if there's any that you find, you will learn something. You will get something out of it. But I think my favorite type of reading to do for grading is academic research. So if you have access to a database that allows you to read research articles, there are some phenomenal pieces out there that go through what grading is supposed to do and what it is doing for real the way that we have have it set up right now and that to me is so much more valuable because it's it's done in a case study format usually these articles are shorter than a book um, and you can get so much out of it that you really like you're like all right I I got this. Like, I can do this. Do you mind sending me some links that I can post on the website of some of your maybe favorite articles? Absolutely. I've got a whole folder. <laughs> I will send those over to you. <laughs> and then, of course, you are a person to follow because you are doing this amazing work. So your social media handle on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn is... At K.N. Giordano? That is correct. And uh, on my blog, I've written a lot about grading. And I cite a ton of these research articles and link them on there, too. Always a good place to uh, to get a little bit of that information. I, I write about what I read pretty frequently. So if you don't want to read the research, you can always read what I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Again, thank you so much, Caitlin. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and good luck in in your new district for next year. I think your kids are going to be so happy to have you as a new part of their lives. Thank you so much. I had such a great time talking with you today. That was Agent Caitlin Giordano with Why Going Gradeless gives students ownership of their learning while encouraging powerful one-on-one conversations. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will be available along with links to resources we mentioned and information about previous special agents at lessonimpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues or reading and reviewing it on your podcast listening app. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.